This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. Could uninspired, brutalist architecture be one reason that we have an uninspired and brutal society? In my hometown, York, Pennsylvania, there is a magnificent post office. Built on one of the city's main thoroughfares sometime in the 1920s, it is a massive granite structure with huge Doric columns on the front. Just walking up the stairs into the main door leaves an impression of majesty of the structure, and even of the government that built it. Inside, the lobby is lofty. Its decoration is restrained, but appropriate to a place of which important things happen. The tables and counters are also of stone and are as permanent and impressive as the building itself. Across the street is City Hall. The neighbors are retail businesses, offices, the county courthouse, and churches. Hundreds of people pass it each day. There is only one problem with this impressive building. It has been closed for at least five years. The new post office is in an industrial park outside of town. It has all the personality of a discount shoe store in a strip mall on the wrong side of the tracks. The only advantage to the new facility is that the post office trucks can come and go easily. It is isolated from all of its patrons. A large percentage of York's population doesn't even know where it is. This may seem a peculiar topic for the return to order moment. The design of post office is not one of our usual topics. However, the change from the old to the new post office is yet another sign of the deterioration of American life. In today's first essay, Regimenting the Body and Destroying the Soul, the Ugly Legacy of Brutalism. Mr. Edwin Benson examines the so-called style of far too many modern buildings and their effect on all of us. Modernists like to manipulate words, often spinning them into meanings that appear simple but are relatively obscure. For example, consider the modern misuse of terms like accompaniment, social justice, or even woke. Such is not the case with the architectural style known as brutalism. Merriam-Webster defines brutal as using the words cold, harsh, severe, unpleasant, and lacking sensitivity. A bit further down the page, it refers to brutalism as, quote, a style in art and especially architecture, using exaggeration and distortion to create its effect as of massiveness or power, unquote. While many might not be familiar with the word, few have escaped brutalist structures. A moment's reflection will probably end the mystery. Anyone who imagines a cold, harsh, severe, and unpleasant building probably envisions a brutalist structure. When speaking of a building style, architects often discuss typical elements. Individual elements may be missing, but most will appear in a particular style. All of the following are elements of brutalism. 1. Massiveness 2. Primarily constructed of raw, unpainted, reinforced concrete. 3. Rough, unfinished walls. 4. Exposed structural mechanics, most often beams, ductwork, and pipes.
5. Irregular shapes 6. Lack of ornamentation 7. Limited, if any, use of color 8. Radically utilitarian and 9. Modular features that could have been constructed elsewhere and brought to the site. Indeed, the term brutalism does not refer to the assault on the senses that many such buildings represent. It comes from the French phrase for raw concrete, béton brut. Unfortunately, examples of brutalism abound. Between 1960 and 1980, Many public officials and businesses passionately embrace the style. Its massiveness and expression of utility implies the institution's overwhelming power, which enveloped individuals with a sense of being closed in, insignificant, and uncomfortable. One inspiration for this article was a glowing book review of the autobiography If Walls Could Speak by Moshe Safdie, a leading brutalist architect. Mr. Safdie started his architectural practice in 1964 after graduating from Canada's McGill University. The architectural world took notice of him in 1967 when his 12-story Habitat 67 was an exhibit at that year's Montreal World's Fair. Habitat 67 consists of identical prefabricated concrete modules connected in no apparent pattern. It is a revolution against every previous rule of architecture. The book review mentioned above describes it and its significance. Quote, Safdie took 354 prefab concrete modules and drew them together. It defied the notion that a building was an object with a distinct shape. Here was no formal shape whatsoever, only agglomeration. Habitat 67 effectively abolished the traditional street and, perhaps, if taken to its logical conclusion, the city itself. It anticipated a future in which human habitation itself might be transformed where one would no longer think in terms of buildings and rooms, but cells and capsules, unquote. Indeed, Habitat 67 broke the rules for the sake of breaking them. Still standing today, the building plunges the observer into a sea of disharmony. It is an architectural expression that reflects well the chaotic 60s and 70s, which became a hotbed of revolution. The Montreal World's Fair opened at the same time San Francisco's so-called Summer of Love splashed into the headlines and the imaginations of legions of so-called baby boomers in their late teens and twenties. The following year was the time of the Sorbonne Revolution in Paris and riots in many American cities fueled by the anti-Vietnam War movement. It was the age of LSD and other psychedelic drugs. Other architects and city planners stood up and took notice of the change of mood. As the welfare state sought to address the problems of the crumbling central cities, they looked to the new brutalist style. 
while Habitat 67 was too space inefficient to be a model for the agents of Lyndon Johnson's dreams of urban renewal, the lessons of its construction were useful. A construction project that relies on reinforced concrete is fast and cheap. Builders can throw prefabricated sections together quickly. Covering up ductwork and plumbing with plaster and moldings was costly, but the new style made it unnecessary. The irregularity of brutalism freed architects and builders from the constraints of any single style. At last, utility could prevail over style. Form could follow function, as avant-garde architects had desired since about 1900. They also appreciated the symbolic aspect of the style that projected an image of massive government largesse, radical egalitarianism, and a revolt against the establishment. In the final evaluation, what were high-rise urban apartment buildings, especially those built to house the poor, but a series of cells and capsules? The bureaucracy decreed the removal of blocks of crumbling Victorian tenements and their replacement with scientifically designed public housing projects for millions of the poverty-stricken. Brutalism also became the style of choice for socialist and communist tyrants. Their ideology rejected bourgeois concepts like beauty, the party discarded anything individual in the name of the common good. The necessity to house millions of interchangeable sources of labor meant the construction of ever more cells and capsules, each new building less human and more egalitarian than the one it replaced. However, people want to live in homes, not concrete capsules. The home should be warm and inviting, not forbidding and cold. It should be a haven from the inhumanity of the outside world, not a soulless space to mold soulless people. So many rejected the urban-planned nightmare of the projects. Unfortunately, that rejection took a few years to come together. In the meantime, Millions of brutalist city halls, police stations, courthouses, banks, college classroom buildings, and office structures scarred the nation. These new buildings rejected humanity, so humans rejected the buildings. Perhaps the most startling aspect of brutalism was how the post-Vatican II church embraced the style. Echoing the urban planners, poured concrete worship spaces replaced hundreds of Victorian Gothic church buildings. In parishes that could not afford new buildings, the high altars, statues, and painted surfaces gave way to ugly, plain, smooth, and flat elements and beige-painted walls. The burlap and felt banners that hung from too many walls were only the pitiful attempts to humanize such places. All of this was done because the so-called experts said the new spaces lent dignity to the congregation. 
The Gothic style, in contrast, made workers feel insignificant. To inspire awe was to make the worship experience impersonal. Of course, no one asked the people for whom the experts claimed to advocate. Congregations cried as the wrecking balls and hammers destroyed the beauty their grandparents and great-grandparents had sacrificed to create. So many members of these congregations voted with their feet, leaving such abominations in droves, while others remained in the new alien spaces but were never comfortable there. Unfortunately, this disgusting style may be making a comeback. Among other places, its return is featured on the My Modern Met website, constructed and hosted by the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Quote, They say that trends are circular, and what's old becomes new again. This is true for fashion, music, and art. In the case of architecture, there's no architectural style that exemplifies this principle better than brutalism. From the mid-20th century, this style rose in popularity before reaching its peak in the mid-70s when it came crashing down as a model of bad taste. But that's all changing now, with a renewed interest and appreciation for this once derided architectural style, unquote. The increasingly totalitarian woke society needs an architectural style that expresses its repressive ugliness and class struggle philosophy. Brutalism might well be that choice. Recently, the author of the book, Return to Order, the inspiration for this podcast, did some traveling. During his travels, he spent some time in the new airport in Kansas City. He recorded his reactions to it in his essay, Impressions of a Soulless New Airport. As a somewhat frequent traveler to Kansas City, I have watched the building of the new international airport from a distance. From inside the old 70s-style terminals, everyone could see the nearby project developing on the horizon over the past two years. I did not know what to expect, but the plain boxy look did not look promising. Perhaps my expectations were too high. I believe that airports should be distinctive, not just functional. They should tell the traveler about the place they are entering. Indeed, an airport should introduce us to the people of the area. In times past, the city train station had such a touch of grandeur that made citizens proud of their locale. Stations like New York's Grand Central Station are, well, grand. They are full of ornament, art, and architectural splendor. Kansas City residents had long debated the need for a new airport. The old one had been built in the 70s and was considered the cutting edge at the time. The three circular terminals, without much room for shops, offered an easy-in, easy-out option. But times changed, and people started to linger at airports. 
The circular style was soon superseded by the long strip mall model that put everything together. Terminals, security, dining, shopping, and baggage claim all into one. Planners made sure that Kansas City would get an airport just like any other. And that sameness is what makes the place so disappointing. The facility was inaugurated in February 2023. On a recent trip, I soon had my chance to experience the airport, which prompted me to write down my impressions. My commentary should not be seen as a mean-spirited critique of the locality. As a Kansas native, I bear no one there ill will. My main point is that the new airport does not represent the area. It doesn't represent any area since it is so inexpressive. The $1.5 billion project sadly reflects the radical spiritual poverty of our times. My lament is restricted to the spirit behind the construction, not the poor residents that must now use it. The first impression is one of bigness. Too much bigness. The person feels lost in the gigantic spaces, dwarfed by the proportions. The feel is boxy, not airy. The terminal is a parade of right angles, flat on the top, never pointing upward. The ceilings are high, with upper windows that let in a good amount of natural light. Thankfully, there are no structural I-beams, pipes, and other exposed infrastructure so common in other airports. Everything is neatly sealed in a controlled and artificial environment that lets in nothing from the outside and vice versa. Save for a few ornamental plants at a restaurant, I noticed no living things to rest the soul. The extra space is disorienting, as the central corridors are overly long, sterile, and wide. The great distance from the gate to the pickup area has very little to distract the mind except for the periodic murals or screens with messages and advertising along the way. Like many modern buildings, the walls have little color beyond whites and pastels. Thus, the airport suffers from blandness. Finally, the check-in area before security is like a massive gymnasium, boxing in the departure area. Covering half the ceiling is row upon row of hanging round objects resembling old farm discs and implements, which leaves the traveler bewildered by their lack of meaning. Thus, the overall structure is highly functional, largely unadorned, uncomfortably gigantic, and utterly uncontroversial. There is little architectural daring or upward movement. It is a place without a sense of place. It could be anywhere or nowhere. Of course, the airport is not all wide corridors. 
the monotony of the dozens of individual gates and waiting areas is broken with the monotony of the standard fare of coffee shops, restaurants, bookstores, and snack bars found in most airports. In the center, there is a food court and shopping area that tries to be different. A so-called city market offers local-themed and overpriced products, especially focused on area sports teams and barbecue. There is little that might be called authentic local culture. The most significant artistic monument is a large presumptuous fountain consisting of glowing hoops of electric lighting trying to simulate water, but without much success. While waiting outside on the uninspiring curb for my ride, a fellow traveler used the word soulless to describe the new airport. I agree. The problem is not the place's functionality that seems to work well enough. What is missing are the cultural and spiritual aspects that are much more important than the physical workings. There need to be things that speak to the soul. Soulless buildings appear when our postmodern culture detaches us from our cultural, historical, and religious narratives. Unanchored from any single worldview, these bland creations become a pastiche of disconnected styles that asphyxiate us in their triviality. We are left with anti-metaphysical buildings, hollow boxes, empty shells containing little meaning or symbolism. Their giant and sterile corridors reflect the desolation of the postmodern existential journey blind to any consideration of life's final goal or purpose. Thus, my assessment of this soulless place with no sense of place is one of frustration. Architecture, even airports, should uplift and inspire the soul to consider higher and wider panoramas. By their logic and beauty, these buildings should speak to us of God, the source of all beauty. I lament that so many new buildings seem designed to limit horizons to the purely material, functional, and superficial. They have been sanitized to exclude any hint of higher agency. I long for architect Augustus Pugin's pointed buildings— full of imagination and brilliance that rivet my gaze and sweep it heavenward. In the last sentence of his essay, Mr. Horvat briefly mentioned the great English architect that designed the clock tower called Big Ben. This structure, which has become a kind of a symbol for the entire country, is a masterpiece of the style of architecture that modern man calls Gothic. Mr. Plinio Morea Salomeo examines this effect in his essay, How the Revival of Catholic Architecture in England Changed the Way People Prayed. In the good times, when people had faith, churches were the most beautiful and elevated buildings in cities. Churches provided an environment conducive to prayer, 
when people raise their minds to God. One example among thousands is how religious architecture marked Catholicism in mid-19th century England when Catholics were a minority. During the early centuries of Christianity, and especially the Middle Ages, the Catholic faith and architecture flourished in Britain to the point that it earned the epithet Island of Saints. In the 16th century, however, the lurid King Henry VIII broke with the true church to marry Anne Boleyn. He issued the so-called Act of Supremacy, declaring himself the, quote, new and supreme head of the church in England, unquote. This proclamation gave rise to the Anglican Church. As a result, the Catholic religion was banned and persecuted for almost two centuries. A 1701 decree forbade any papist to rise to the English throne. Even after the Kingdom of Great Britain was established in 1707, Catholics were still excluded from voting, running for Parliament, or exercising some professions. In 1778, this situation was mitigated with the so-called Papist Acts, which allowed Catholics to own private property, inherit land, and serve in the army. These concessions enraged many Anglicans, which revealed how deep anti-Catholic sentiment ran in the country. However, events outside the country changed this sentiment. During the French Revolution, thousands of French Catholic refugees settled in Britain. During the Napoleonic Wars, Britain was allied with Catholic nations, especially Spain, Portugal, and the Holy See. These developments gave new courage to the children of the true Church. In 1829, Parliament passed the Emancipation Act, which granted Catholics civil rights almost equal to those of Protestants. Catholics could now vote and hold public office. Although officially unrecognized, the Catholic Church already had a considerable number of faithful at the time of the Emancipation Act. Around 50,000 members came from traditional Catholic families called refusers, a large influx of Irish Catholic immigrants later fled the Great Irish Potato Famine of 1845 to 1849. The number doubled, from 224,000 Catholics in 1841 to 419,000 in 1851. A third group of converts from the Anglican Church joined these two groups. These Catholics belonged to the Oxford Movement, which included French immigrants and future Cardinals Newman and Manning, second Archbishop of Westminster. In the Middle Ages, England constructed magnificent Gothic cathedrals, which still stand today as witnesses to the faith of those true Catholics. After the Act of 1829, there was a major revival of Catholic architecture. One exponential Catholic architect was Augustus Pugin, 
1812 to 1852. His short and dynamic life transformed how English Catholics and Anglicans viewed ecclesiastical architecture. He inherited his father's skills of draftsman, decorator, and art critic, becoming a pioneer of the neo-Gothic style in England. Pugin's father was a Frenchman who fled the French Revolution and married a Protestant wife. She took little Augustus to attend religious services at the Scottish Presbyterian Church. The little boy never felt at ease and always expressed displeasure at the Scottish Church's cold and sterile forms. As soon as he felt free from the obstacles imposed by his mother, he ran into the arms of the Catholic Church, which attracted his imaginative mind with its pompous ceremonies. At age 23, Pugin converted to the Catholic Church. He wrote to a friend, quote, I can assure you that, after a closer and more impartial investigation, I am convinced that the Roman Catholic Church is the only true one and the only one in which the grand and sublime Gothic style of ecclesiastical architecture can be restored. Unquote. In 1836, Pugin published his book, Contrasts, in which he defended medieval architecture's, quote, wonderful superiority, unquote, over modern architecture. In this polemical book, he advocated a revival of medieval Gothic style and, quote, a return to the faith and social structures of the Middle Ages, unquote. In 1839, he built his first Gothic church, St. Mary's, for the 16th Earl of Shrewsbury in Derby. He then constructed or designed many works, including four cathedrals. His designs can be seen in England, Ireland, and even Australia. This Catholic convert established himself as a decorator genius, always specializing in Gothic art. Westminster Palace, which houses the British Parliament and its iconic Big Ben clock tower, is his culminating work in this field and is still admired worldwide. In 1840, this renowned Catholic architect built his favorite church, St. Giles in Cheadle. He said it was the first really good thing I did, unquote. The indefatigable Augustus Pugin died prematurely on September 14, 1852, at just 40 years of age, leaving several disciples, including his sons. Over 100 years later, in the 1950s, Church builders chose to design brutally modern churches, influenced by the emerging liturgical movement. Both Liverpool Cathedral and the Church of Our Lady of Fatima in Harlow were pre-Vatican II projects built with a circular shape. The modernist mentality fostered by the Council gave a tremendous boost to the so-called liturgical reforms. Thus, Many Catholic architects started to build churches according to the new ideas. 
Consequently, those buildings lost their ability to attract even Catholics over time. With the drastic decrease in the number of faithful, the construction of new churches in England practically stopped after 1975. The only contemporary Catholic architect catering to church design is Anthony de la Rue, who dedicates himself to restoring churches vandalized by modern priests in the council's wake. Today, empty churches reflect the widespread flight of the faithful. Thus, England, like everywhere else, is unlikely to see new church construction soon. A Catholic architecture tradition of more than 200 years has come to a drastic end. May Our Lady have mercy on Holy Mother Church. This concludes, Could uninspired brutalist architecture be one reason that we have an uninspired and brutal society? Thank you for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. We publish a new episode every week as Tuesday becomes Wednesday at midnight. You can hear our program in two ways. The first is to subscribe to your favorite podcast provider. Another is to go to our website, www.returntoorder.org, and click on the podcast link at the top of the page, which will take you to a list with the most recent podcast on top. Listeners can help Return to Order be more effective by giving us a five-star rating with their favorite podcast service. Subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will find the Return to Order moment online. We would also like to recommend Mr. John Horvat's book, Return to Order. It is available as a free download on our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2023 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.